and Happy New Year, listeners. It is great to be back here with you in the RSP recording studio. I'm Andy Alexander, and joining me here today is... Sidney Castillo. Thanks so much for being here today, Sydney. It's great to have you. Thanks for the invitation, Andy. Now, today, you are chatting with a couple of folks from a panel that you participated on last year about the study of ayahuasca in the academic study of religion. Could you tell us a little bit about today's episode? So this episode is titled Critical Approaches for the Study of Ayahuasca. And in it, I'm talking with Dr. Ben Brabeck de Mori and Dr. Olivia Marcos. Each have done ethnographic research in the Peruvian Amazon. Dr. Brabeck de Mori, specifically with the Shipibo of Cayali, and Dr. Marcus on the Mestizo context in Tarapoto and Iquitos, which are two cities in the rainforest of Peru. And the discussion that arises from the podcast is that we go on an overview on what constitutes ayahuasca in the first place, what are the specific historical moments that ayahuasca have been shaping, and which groups of people have taken it through different uh, contexts. So it is from this discussion that we appeal to different questions such as what are the possibilities for decolonizing our approaches to ayahuasca and what constitutes also a critical approach to any study, any kind of phenomena. So in a nutshell, in this podcast, you will learn how we can critically address ayahuasca and other psychedelics, what are the local contexts in which it is taken in the indigenous and mestizo populations, and what are the possibilities for decolonizing our approaches to ayahuasca. I hope you enjoy this episode. That sounds great. This is Questioning the Silver Bullet, Critical Approaches for the Study of Ayahuasca by you, Sidney Castillo. Take it away. And now we are back at the Relief Studies Project. Hello, everyone. I hope you had a lovely summer. My name is Sidney Castillo. And today I have the pleasure to talk with Olivia Marcus and Bern Brabeck de Mori on critical approaches for the study of ayahuasca. First, I will introduce like to introduce my colleagues here. Uh, Olivia Marcus completed an MPH socio- in sociomedical sciences at Columbia University and a PhD in medical anthropology at the University of Connecticut. Before beginning her doctoral research, she focused on sexual health, HIV AIDS prevention, mental health, and juvenile justice and health behavior among people who use traditional, complementary, and alternative medicine. Her interest in TCAM brought her attention to the Peruvian Amazon to investigate therapeutic pluralism in the treatment of mental health conditions. Her current research examines the use of traditional Amazonian healing techniques for mental health care with a focus on the dialogue among shamans, mental health practitioners, and their clients. She currently teaches anthropology at the University of Connecticut and collaborates on the Ayahuasca Treatment Outcome Project which examines long-term outcomes of ayahuasca-assisted psychotherapy for addiction rehabilitation. And we also have Bern Brabeck de Mori with us. Bern Brabeck de Mori received his MA in 2003 and PhD in 2012 in musicology from the University of Vienna. He has been working for five years in the field among indigenous people in the Peruvian lowland rainforests. After returning to Europe in 2006, he has been teaching and researching among other institutions at the Phonograma Kif of the Austrian Academy of Sciences at the Department of Social and Cultural Anthropology at Philips University in Marburg, 
at the Center for Systematic Musicology of Carl Francis University Graz, at the University of Musicology at the University of Vienna, at the Institute of Ethnomusicology of the University of Music and Performing Arts at Graz, and as associate researcher at Yunnan University. He published a couple of books, among them, the leader that Richtingen mentioned, uh, my German is very bad, South America is Mundos Audibles, in 2015 both, and Auditive Recent Cultural, or Auditory Knowledge Cultures, 2018, as well as research articles in the areas of indigenous vocal music, medical ethnomusicology, sound perception, and auditory knowledge. Welcome to Olivia and Bern to the Release Studies Project again. Thank you very much. Hello. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Olivia. It's wonderful to have you here now. And uh, before beginning with the questions, I would just like to have to give some background context to how we met each other. And, uh, well, it all came to be, uh, we all participated uh, with a presentation in the workshop from Ritual to Justice towards a decolonial and feminist approach to ayahuasca, which was organized, by the way, by Olivia Marcos and Silvia Mesturini, another colleague of us. And this was part of the Society for Anthropology of London, South America, 13th Biennial Conference this past June. So to COVID conditions was done online, but it was hosted by University of Virginia. And now we are going to talk about ayahuasca, which is this, uh, we could say, psychedelic, uh, psychoactive drink composed by two main uh, plants, but it has many variations. One is Barnisteriosis capi, and the other is Chacruna leaf or Cicotria viridis. And uh, the main particularity of this brew is that it keeps provides like visionary experiences. Now it has been used, it has been used for some time by indigenous and mestizo Amazonian religious practices, but now has become massified by current global spiritual trends, along other ways of novel ways of consumption. So, and now I would like to delve into the question. So, um, I would like to ask you both. And uh, please, you can spend as, as much as you want. Um, what constitutes the critical study of ayahuasca? What are the current directions of inquiry? And how do they contribute to a critical assessment of ayahuasca and psychedelics in general? Please take it away. Um, well, I'll start off with a couple comments and then uh, pass it over to Bernd, who's really yeah. written some very influential stuff on this topic. Um, I'll just say in a very general broad way that I think touches on a lot of in anthropology and religious studies um, theory is just the concept of tradition, thinking of tradition as something that's living, that's changing, constantly dynamic, constantly integrating new inputs um, from new generations, from different cultural contacts. So that's kind of, I think, an important launching point for um, thinking about the uses of ayahuasca in a variety of contexts um, from a critical perspective. And I'll let Byrne continue from that since he's really um, written a lot of important uh, comments on this topic. 
Oh uh, well, thank you. I yeah, you you were talking about tradition. I do agree with that. Uh, that we have this situation that um, much of the use of ayahuasca in many actual uh, contexts, like also in in Europe or the States or in other places in the world, always referred to this indigenous or mestizo tradition in, in the Amazon. And with that, it makes its main appearance that it's not like any hallucinogenic um, drug like LSD or, <clears throat> or or others, also like uh, psilocybin or mescaline or something. But it's it's understood as a hallucinogenic substance which has been used for some time, I'll say. Sometimes people say for millennia or for a couple of hundreds of years by indigenous people in the Amazon. And this is something uh, that makes it special, I think. And I would ask uh, for a critical approach, first the question, why? So why does an association with Amazonian indigenous people make uh, a substance more special than others? And if you really delve into that question, then you will um, have to critically evaluate uh, many pre-assumptions that we as people from the Western world have um, with ayahuasca, I think. So maybe that's that's a start, isn't it? <laughs> right, that's a good point of entry for kind of contextualizing uh, how can we study or approach ayahuasca critically. Um, I would like to ask you now, um, how can we understand uh, the current use of ayahuasca among indigenous peoples and mestizo populations in the Peruvian rainforest based on previous historical developments on how cunanderos, vegetalistas, and ayahuasqueros emerge from these histories? Yeah, maybe I should continue because... Olivia did not um, or did base her study more on the contemporary uses also among mestizo populations, didn't you? So uh, the indigenous history is um, something that I did study for quite a long time. And um, yeah, it, it did change, of course. It did change a lot um, from, from what we would call some traditional forms of use by indigenous and also mestizo people. So um, a current theory that I'm a friend of would say that ayahuasca was discovered a couple of hundred years ago, maybe roughly around the time of the conquest. So kind of 500 or maybe 400 or 700 or something uh, years ago by indigenous people who were living probably around Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, and then it spreads uh, little by little among uh, uh, also mestizo populations. Our colleague Peter Gao, he wrote a very influential paper saying or stating the influence of missions and camps and uh, this kind of forced migrations during the 19th and 20th century as very important factors that ayahuasca use could spread among those communities that today would say that they traditionally use ayahuasca. So it doesn't seem to be so old. And so uh, in, in among all those indigenous uh, populations, you have concepts of medicine, healing, illness, uh, 
uh, also in a very social sense, like also um, illness can be that uh, you don't have friends or whatever. So social um, parts are also considered in, in a way like an illness. And indigenous people among the whole Amazonia, probably around the world, all have medical or, or concepts how to change these conditions, how to change conditions that are understood as bad or as dangerous or whatever into a condition which is perceived as something better. Yeah, let's say treatments like uh, or trying to achieve health. And these um, techniques are mainly based on yeah, plant medicine, also on, on, on singing, on songs, on interacting with, with the environment, like with animals, with plants, with spirits and so on. And applying ayahuasca is just one, one possibility to contact those other beings, like the spirits of animals and so on. Yeah. Um, so this, this is something that, that you can achieve with a kind of year long training and then by using ayahuasca. But you can also achieve it by many other means, like many populations all over the world do kind of the same thing without ayahuasca or without uh, psychedelic or hallucinogenic substances. Um, so this this is something that that happened during the last hundred couple of hundreds of years, and so uh, ayahuasca was entered during the twentieth century, entered the discourse among a. Uh, whatever visitors let's say visitors like missionaries traders and of course anthropologists tourists and so on uh they found out about this that this substance is used by indigenous people and mestizo people and they started to get interested into that and then we had a very interesting repercussion that of course the indigenous and mestizo people from peru or other countries there they also found out that the foreigners are interested in ayahuasca. And so they became interested in why the foreigners are interested in ayahuasca. And they changed the form of using ayahuasca also in order to meet the expectations of the foreigners. Because the foreigners were less interested in whatever contacting spirits for solving certain local problems uh, but they came from a background of the psychedelic um, years in the 1960s and so on, and they had a very different opinion and, on on what what a what a hallucinogenic substance would do. So this is a kind of a, a mutual influence from the Westerners to the indigenous people or mestizos and the, the local people towards the Westerners. Right, and this somehow somehow uh, brings a. Uh repercussion into how the other mestizo traditions have developed. Is that right, Olivia? Or would you say it's that way? Or it goes in a different way? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that it's, um, you know, it, it all developed in, within that similar context. Um, there's the, uh, uh, you know, the historical, uh, feature, so to speak, of these big economic booms in the history of, of Peru in general, um, in the Amazonian regions in particular, um, such as coca boom, logging boom, particularly the rubber boom that brought a lot of um, Europeans and slaves and descendants of African slaves to these regions um, where we found this like 
very intensive intercultural mixes. But um, what Byrne was really explaining, I think, is a really important context for understanding the question he posed, which was why ayahuasca? Mm -hmm. And I think it's something a lot of us are very interested in, knowing that there are so many other plants that are considered to be very important, that are known to be very powerful for healing purposes, for divining purposes, for purposes mm -hmm. of sorcery. Um, so the question, and also that are known to be even more powerful psychedelic. So in terms of from like a Western kind of thrill-seeking perspective, um, right. why ayahuasca is, you know, still a big question. You know, why not these other psychedelic experiences maybe that are a bit more pleasant or more powerful or, you know, mm. different in some other way. And I, I like to use a framework in thinking about this question um, proposed by this anthropologist, Libet Crandon Malamud, who did her field work in Bolivia. And she wrote this, I think, quite well-known article, um, I think in the 60s, maybe the 70s, um, called Why Susto? And mm -hmm. uh, for the audience members who don't know about Susto, Susto is um, what's known as kind of like a culture-bound syndrome. Um, it's uh, found in various iterations, but, you know, kind of a very common or similar set of symptomology throughout um, Central and South America. And it's generally translated as fright. And the idea being that, like, Something happened and your soul was basically frightened out of your body, um, which is causing certain manifestations of illness. And for many years, um, anthropologists and biologists and doctors, physiologists, et cetera, were trying to figure out what susto is. You know, like, can we see, is it malnutrition? Is it, you know, some sort of parasite? Is, is, is there some kind of biological answer to what this is and why it's so pervasive. And I think, and what Libet Crendon Malamud did was say, it doesn't really matter what susto is, mm. but why susto, why this diagnostic concept and why this kind of set of symptoms is so important uh, culturally in so many different areas of South America and Central America as well. Um, so I think using that lens for thinking about why ayahuasca has become mm. so important for certain indigenous groups, for certain mestizo groups, and also for certain, you know, new age and syncretic um, religions throughout the world is an important way to understand, kind of lead to understand mm -hmm. um, these current uses, uh, why it's become the centerpiece of coranderismo, um, and why it's become a very important uh, tool and technology for indigenous groups, um, for some as a form of what we would call cultural revitalization or as like mm -hmm. a tool for um, furthering certain political and existential struggles. Exactly. And then in the mestizo context, um, one could say it's been you know, very important for as a source of economic income. Yeah, I think that that's some very important points that you have raised, Olivia, there, because that's what it's it's seen currently in the sort of panor panorama of what happens in particularly in the rainforest of Peru, 
and the other neighboring countries that are also not only the ones that have rainforests, but that have this kind of uh, shamanic traditions or has become very prominent and almost like a, like a staple, like something that you are expected to find in a way. And uh, but everything so, somehow it speaks in a in a more or less similar level. No? So there is like an expectation from the person that goes to these places, and also like uh, some of well, like a somewhat accurated product to offer at the same time to tourists or spiritual seekers. And uh, it's interesting to distinguish between who is administering at the same time, if it's a curandero or a vegetalista or a huasquero, and to whom. I think those points are very relevant for a critical discussion. Uh, but I would like to go like for like a follow-up question to this. You each have done field work in Peru and rainforest in Peruvian rainforest. Bern has done field work in among the Shipio and Ucayali. And uh, and you, Olivia, have done fieldwork in Takiwasi, in northern uh, rainforest, as well as uh, neighboring areas. So I would like to hear more about your fieldwork experiences. How this all of these concepts have like been evident in in your current ethnographic uh, context. So we can begin with by either of you. Okay, so. <clears throat> Um, I start. Okay. Um, well, the fieldwork experience was in my case, uh, from 1998 to about 2006, when I've been living a couple of years in, in the Peruvian Amazon. And as you mentioned, I mainly worked with Chipibo people, but also with the other indigenous groups, uh, <clears throat> mainly in order to understand their, their use of music and songs, vocal music. And the singing in ayahuasca sessions is one part of that. And I did work with, with healers from, from a couple of villages and they did mainly work in uh, being local healers, uh, working with local people. And uh, in those cases, when somebody of, among the local people uh, presented an, any kind of uh, ailment, and then they would treat them, some of them using ayahuasca and others not, yeah. So um, my fieldwork experience is based on what we would call a traditional indigenous use, where notably only, only the healer would drink ayahuasca in order to get in contact with those entities like spirits and animals and plants, among who the healer would then... Uh, interact in order to maybe instruct them or trick them uh, or um, overthrow the the original causer of the illness which can be a spirit or a competing healer or whatever in 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 this kind of spirits world yeah so the healer would by the means of ayahuasca enter the spirits world in order to deal out things with the spirits and the patient would not drink ayahuasca but just wait what the healer does to him or her uh, so this was what, what I uh, observed and recorded and analyzed uh, in, during my fieldwork. And now I've, I've been visiting Peru and the region a couple of times in shorter, in shorter visits, and I, I witnessed uh, this big change that occurred during the last 15 years, that now in almost every Shipibo village you'll find a, 
uh, an ayahuasca center which is visited by white people or by people from outside the rainforest, let's say. can also be from other South American parts or from Lima and so on. And they would drink ayahuasca and they would uh, want to learn to become shamans themselves. So this is a, a totally different setting that you also observe now in this in those villages. And it's quite interesting because, um, as I told before, the, the healer would drink ayahuasca in the indigenous uh, setting. And now among those uh, seekers uh, who want to maybe have some problems with health, or they um, want to grow spiritually in some way or have inspiration or whatever, um, or, or would like to become shamans in order to heal some other people, they would kind of insist in drinking ayahuasca themselves. So they would not um, kind of uh, be the patients in the indigenous setting, but they would be the, the, the healers. Yeah. So that's uh, the first transition that, that everybody... Uh, participating in the session would drink ayahuasca and uh, this is of course an important shift because in in those indigenous uh, contexts where i've been uh, i worked uh, 15 to 20 years ago um, local lay people would say uh, no i'm i'm not going to drink ayahuasca i'm not crazy i'm not a, i'm not a healer i cannot do that yeah this was literally reserved for the healers themselves and this changed substantially what what I in a publication and also uh, Via Labachi once called uh, the psycholog psychologization of ayahuasca. So that the thing that is considered important now is the hallucinatory experience itself and the passing through anything of cathartic experience to pass through, through uh, uneasy experiences, through vomiting and so on, to be cleaned and to reach some beyond, which is considered to be, um, a kind of healing effect by drinking the substance itself and passing through the experience. And in the indigenous setting, this, this simply did not happen. Yeah, so this is something I, I witnessed during the last 20 years. Olivia, uh, could you follow up on that? Uh, what have has been your experience on observing this transition or because you have done specifically field work on the mestizo context of ayahuasca. Yeah, so my field work, the era that I did my field work in, um, was about 15 years later. Um, I started, well, my first trip was in 2010, but I didn't start doing my PhD field work until. 2015 and by then everything had changed <laughs> i didn't know it because i had just been reading anthropology um from you know the 60s through the 90s and i hadn't been caught up in any of this like you know kind of more western focused popular culture of uh ayahuasca stuff um i didn't really understand why people were so thrilled about it since you know from the anthropological stuff i read it didn't sound very fun <laughs> um but yeah so you know when i got there was my uh like you had um mentioned in my introduction 
my interest was mostly in therapeutic pluralism. So I didn't come with this explicit agenda of studying ayahuasca. I actually resisted that quite a bit. Um, and I really wanted to focus very much more broadly on medicinal plants and kind of their uses among local people and concepts of mental health and how those differ. Um, but I ended up getting sucked into this world of ayahuasca shamanism because it was just so, you know, as a white woman from the United States in the jungle, it's just so in your face. You know, people assume that's what you're there for. Um, and and I started out my fieldwork in Tarapoto, the San Martin region, where at, at the time it wasn't, you know, you can still be there and people are assuming you're not there specifically for ayahuasca. Whereas in Iquitos, it's like as soon as you get out of the taxi moto there, or into the taxi moto from the airport, they're like, ayahuasca, ayahuasca, you know, my sh cousin is a shaman or my cousin or friend owns a center, you know, everyone is like connected in some way. Um, so yeah, that's basically the context I stepped into. And uh, I decided eventually after some resistance to engage with that. And like you've mentioned, I, it was very much focused on this urban and peri-urban CISO context, which, you know, very much relies on a lot of indigenous cosmology and elements, but, you know, definitely weaves in uh, a little bit of everything. Um, and especially, you know, in 2015 to 2021, you have uh, Ayurveda and, you know, yoga and Chinese medicine and Reiki and, you know, all these other, like, maybe more new age elements. Um, so, you know, my, my interest is still in this kind of this idea of therapeutic pluralism. So the use of all these different elements together in one kind of, you could say geographic context or physical location, but, um, you know, my fieldwork really turned into looking at more networks of people and how people and plants and ideas move um, between locations. So it was, definitely less of a traditional anthropological field site and more of a multi-sided exploration between Tarapoto and its outskirts and Iquitos and its outskirts and, um, you know, in the United States and a little bit talking to people in Europe because um, obviously there's a lot of cross chatter. Um, and I, again, my original interest was to look at very specifically this center called Takiwasi, which is um, Sydney, where you are perhaps going to do some fieldwork as well, uh, <laughs> where they combine, <laughs> it's a an addiction rehabilitation clinic, but they also run what, what are called dieta retreats, um, where they combine psychotherapy and like multiple kinds of psychotherapy with other therapeutic processes and like, what they call traditional Amazonian medicine. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, this is a great institution to really look at the complexities of combining all this and like the discourses that have to go into like legitimizing an integrative practice, et cetera. And it didn't take me long um, being there before I realized how many people are like coming here as just one stopping point in their journey of, you know, finding different curanderos, different 
you know, whatever they're seeking in different parts of, um, you know, where I was, the North Northern Amazon. So I decided to kind of basically go to a bunch of different centers and talk to people and see, you know, are there, does everyone have the same idea of what they're doing? Are they, um, you know, are these retreat center owners, like how the retreat centers are structured? Is it just the Corandero and their family on their own land? Is the Corandero being employed by someone? Is it someone that they're being employed by, uh, you know, a light-skinned person from a, the global north? Or are they, you know, from that region? Or are they from Lima or Cusco, you know, kind of a more metropolitan context? Or other parts of South America? So looking at, you know, the structures of these centers how they're marketing to their clientele, what kind of clientele they serve. And also I, I find interesting the way that they talk about um, their relationship to like local people or communities. Right. That sounds like a fascinating context of the research team. And it's pretty much like a con I can definitely see a continuum between Bern's body of research and yours, Olivia, since once translates from the indigenous practices towards an avail like increasing available offer to non uh, we would say non non uh, local audiences uh, or like non non uh, or western more westernized audiences and how this integrates with different other different uh, healing practices which is by the way the the next question I would like to ask both of you so how have ayahuasca and psychedelics in general have become inserted in medical and spiritual discourses. So would you like either one of you to begin? Bernd, we could begin with you. <coughs> yes, okay. <laughs> um, well, I think uh start with psychedelics in general. Uh, because we had uh, from the discovery of LSD on which was uh, first uh, synthesized, I think, in 1938 or 39, and then kind of repeatedly and uh, synthesized and discovered by its discoverer, Albert Hoffmann, in 40-something, and was soon recognized as something what was then called psychotomimetic, so kind of a mimesis of psychosis. And it was um, considered to be something very important for psychiatry, for understanding what psychosis is, uh, to also administering it to people who would suffer from any kind of mental conditions. And, and so it was introduced very quickly into medical research, especially about mental illnesses. So the connection of uh, psychedelics with healing um, emerged in Europe in the 1940s. And during the 1950s and 60s, we know historically that there has a lot, been a lot of developments in, also in the United States and in other countries about the use of hallucinogens like LSD, psilocybin and so on for, uh, those purposes until it was forbidden. Yeah. So the connection is there, but from a very, um, European, a very, um, psychologically biased way. Um, and then, uh, there, there, there came the, the, the hippie time in the sixties and seventies that, 
Um, people started to recreationally use uh, LSD. And at the same time, also um, some researchers and, and visitors came to, to the Amazon in order to, to do ayahuasca and to discover that people there are using this plant, uh, which took a couple of years still to kind of um, get into the mainstream. And, and ayahuasca became known mainly during the 90s and the zero years in in Europe and in the United States and other countries, or what we would call the global north. Um, and as a hallucinogenic substance, I think it was kind of obviously connected to um, medicine, psychiatry, and healing in a certain sense. Um, after following my own uh, historical research, I'm quite unsure about the use of ayahuasca in real medical situations among indigenous people. I would rather call those uses before the contact with the 20th century um, uh, global north. Uh, the use before that among indigenous people would rather be called magical or, or for divination, for hunting magic, for uh, weather magic, and for some this kind of collective rituals. Also, anti-colonial collective rituals. It's quite interesting things that happened during these times. Um, but the connection to the idea of healing was after the rubber boom. And also in the, already in the context, as Olivia mentioned, of, of, of multiple stakeholders coming in, like uh, people from the global north, people like Mestizo or Peruvian or people from other states or from different places, uh, during all those times of exploitations where many people were hurt and had to find ways of uh, reconciliation. And it seems, although Peter Go said that, uh, that uh, ayahuasca was mainly used for this kind of collective reconciliations with a traumatic past. So this is a child of the 20th century and of kind of this cultural contact in any forms. Um, so I think that this is... Uh, the, these are the two stories of how ayahuasca came into this uh, medical and, and later spiritual discourses. Spiritual is something else. Maybe Olivia is uh, better in explaining how ayahuasca entered the spiritual discourse. I hope. Thanks in advance. <laughs> um, I actually I cannot say if I'm going to be any good at explaining. <coughs> Excuse me. How ayahuasca has become inserted in medical and spiritual discourses of course there's a lot of general literature like new age i would say like new age and religious studies oriented literature on you know kind of this so-called western or global north or occidental search for meaning in the world um after the kind of advent and intensification Excuse me, I'm, my throat is a little dry right now. Oh, um, of market capitalism and how that's kind of, you know, the, the great changes in our many societies have caused us to, you know, seek something, <coughs> you know, for deeper spiritual meaning in different ways. And of course, everything that is of the other or is that is exotic 
always seems to have a deeper meaning than something that is more familiar that you've grown up in and seem to know intimately. I would say that's kind of the general way that people like to explain such things. Um, and I, you know, certainly there's some validity to it, but obviously there's a lot, you know, again, we're doing this question of like why ayahuasca or like why psychedelics or why, you know, all these things there's, you know, it's a very complicated answer. Um, and so thinking about both the medical and spiritual discourses with the healing centers, spiritual communities, spiritual tourism, we could also say that this has been going on for perhaps as long as ayahuasca has been in existence, this idea of spiritual tourism, you know, or if you don't want to use the word tourism, people traveling long distances, um, either you could call it a pilgrimage, of course, pilgrimage isn't tourism, but the idea of people traveling long distances to seek out someone for guidance, for healing, for a certain purpose, and whether that's considered <clears throat> spiritual or medical, I think is going to depend on kind of the era in in history or in the present moment in which we think of things as in, like integrated or separate, you know, um, meaning like in, in like most of human history, this medical and the spiritual weren't two separate things. And in much of Amazonian cosmology, the idea of like the social body and the individual body and the, you know, health slash medical and spiritual are not, separate things. All of these things need to be balanced and addressed together. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, so, like me uh, just a second, Olivia. Would you like me to pause it so you can grab a glass of water? Because I can edit this. Um, it, it's fine for now. I can pass it back to Burns, so though maybe he has some commentary to <laughs> improve upon what I've just said. Okay, no problem. <laughs> um, yeah, so Thank don't you. worry, I will edit this part so uh, uh, there's not uh, difficulty here. So just give me a second. <coughs> okay. So would you say that this is these different perspectives on how to address ayahuasca and why ayahuasca in the first place would be somehow related to different ontologies of what you just mentioned, uh, Olivia, and how healing is conceived at the same time. So it, it is not an isolated thing, but rather an interconnected thing that trans, translates or transpasses different uh, different realms of, of reality, we would say, like not only physically, but also spiritual, collective, individual, cognitive, um, different different ways of, of perceiving would you say that it is this the fact or there are others other elements for this difference in perception of ayahuasca i would say that's uh, we, one of the most important um i don't ever like to chalk anything up to just one <laughs> one thing obviously what you said was very complicated but you know those these different you know what we would call different ontologies are certainly very important in terms of how we think about 
medicine and spirituality and health and healing and how these things, how, you know, illness and wellness occur, you know, why we can become ill, how we maintain wellness, or how you even maintain illness in in the context of, you know, sorcery. Um, And whether or not this concept of the medical is even a concept, which again, in, in our society, we think of, you know, medicine, the medical, et cetera, and psychology and the psychological. These are like an economy and exchange and spirituality and all of these different elements and religion as all these separate domains, you know, these separate institutions. And that came from, you know, uh, generations of social theory of, you know, understanding how organized, uh, sorry, how societies organize themselves. But these divisions are, you know, they're completely false. They're just ideas in our minds of how we like to think about and theorize about how things and elements of the way we think about the world work together in order to create a complex society. And I'm getting a bit abstract here, but um, when you look at an example of something like shamanism <clears throat> and the Peruvian Amazon and what people are actually doing, you see that there isn't this separation. You know, there isn't this idea of medicine, as Byrne just said, um, but more of what, I guess, in the Western mind, because we can't even really conceive of it this way anymore, we would call it magic because, you know, there's no other way to think of like how a, some sort of, individual ritual can affect some sort of social thing or like weather event, which has also an effect on an individual body. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I think this leads us, this argument also, well, leads us to consider um, what are, of course, we have this kind of um, not only different ontologies from one side, but also other uh, we will say causal factors that influence how we think and how we classify things. But at the same time, I think, and this was the question of the workshop that we uh, took part in, and uh, I would like to ask you both now so we can discuss a little bit on it. And uh, I would like to ask you, what are the possibilities for decolonizing our approaches to ayahuasca? And what will be some concrete steps towards it? We'll begin with you, Bernd. Okay. <clears throat> well, yes, um, this is a good question, but it's a question based actually on an assumption that w- we did not yet treat. Because for decolonizing anything, we need to know what the aspects of colonialism and coloniality are in this area. And I think we actually hinted at it quite a lot, but we did not name the colonial items in, in the whole process and in the whole thing. So uh, maybe we should first try to find out why it's colonial. Right. Yeah, um, Olivia, would you state your opinion why, why the use of ayahuasca or some uses of ayahuasca are colonial in some way? Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree with um, what you said, and you know, pretty much everything you said in our workshop, <laughs> I was in agreement with of how how we can think about the deco- because you know decoloniality, decolonization has become somewhat of a buzzword and term in I think uh, 
in maybe popular media would be saying so much, but certainly in academia, in academic circles. Um, so, and I would also say in, in the plant medicine so-called community as well, um, something that perhaps all of us have been tracking is just the explosive emergence of different workshops and, uh, you know, papers and, you know, blog entries, et cetera, saying like, we need to decolonize plant medicine, we need to decolonize ayahuasca, et cetera. And as Byrne has hinted at, that ayahuasca, as we see it today, which, you know, as we currently understand it um, and participate in it, is was born out of a colonial encounter. It was born out of a coloniality of like colonial framework um, that created these separations in the first place that it can be a medicine or it can be a therapeutic agent or something psychologized, um, which separates it from the other possibilities of what ayahuasca is, what it can be used for, or whether humans are using ayahuasca or ayahuasca is using humans. Um, <laughs> So I'll I'll pass it back to you, Bernd. I don't know if you have further uh, elaboration on that. Well, let's try. I mean, uh, uh, I can see yes exactly what you said that um, ayahuasca, as we know now, seems to be born out of coloniality, and we can simply compare with other forms of colonialism, like uh, resource colonialism or labor colonialism. You know, the the colonizing country or society like European countries, for example, Spain or whatever, um, they would, for example, lack a certain resource. So you have a lack of something. And then the colonizing country will go somewhere else and occupy this country and extract the resources from there in order to satisfy their need and they would lack before um, this kind of satisfaction. And in labor colonialism, the same thing for processing uh, many tons of cotton and so on. For example, the British Empire uh, built a whole colonial network of labor, uh, cheap labor, uh, people in India and uh, also in other parts, uh, where the British would not be able to do all those work and who would also not like to do this kind of uh uh, very manual hard work they outsourced it to other communities so they took the labor force from somewhere else so again we have the lack for something in the first community in the colonizing community which is then a need that is then satisfied by using or extracting or uh, enslaving the other yeah and in the case of ayahuasca uh, we have a lack in in the in the global north on maybe spiritual satisfaction or on alternatives to capitalism and, and this, uh, what, what the whole New Age or much of New Age is about. And what do we do? We turn to other communities like to India for yoga and so on or to the Amazon for ayahuasca in order to fulfill our need, which uh, in our own society is not being satisfied because we lack of something, yeah? And as in other forms of colonialism, the local lack of something is filled in by taking it from somewhere else. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So this is um, the same thing of colonialism that's really taking place in almost all forms of ayahuasca use, I would say. And it's it's a big problem because it does not um, very much uh, consider the needs of the local people who who had been using ayahuasca before. In the same vein that the British Cotton Empire did not uh, think about how people feel in India or in Bangladesh, and or <laughs> what I mentioned before, this resource extraction colonialism did not. Uh, think about anything important what those countries and societies where they took it from uh, what they thought about that yeah so this is something i i also witnessed this uh, in 2019 i did some field work among so-called white shamans or as uh, those people who went to peru in order to become shamans themselves uh and i was quite amazed that Really, all of my interviewees, who were um, relatively young white people from the global north, they would uh, spend months or even years, up to 12 years in the Amazon to study study what they call this ayahuasca shamanism. And none of them I talked to, yeah, there are others, I know there are others, but none of them, I, as those I talked to, was interested in, for example, the the emancipation and the chances of the children from the indigenous village, uh, if they had good education or could, um, in the poverty of those families. So they were interested in their own spiritual growth and in their own spiritual development as in order to become shamans, in order to heal the world even. Yeah, some, <laughs> uh, but they were not interested if the children in the, in the same village uh, were malnutritioned or had no school education or something like that. So I saw this in, an incredible lack of what I'd call a feeling for coloniality. It was really something I, I observed and I was astonished and I was shocked, actually. I was shocked that this was so separate. It was so separate, white people becoming so-called shamans, while uh, the, the kids in the, the in the villages did not have chances of uh, kind of becoming some something out of uh, labor colonial um, setting. Yeah. So I think that there's a very harsh colonialism inside of the use of ayahuasca. And now for your question, actually, um, how, what are the possibilities for decolonizing? I don't know. Maybe maybe stop using ayahuasca. But maybe there are other um, uh, possibilities. Olivia, do you know a possibility for decolonizing? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question. I think that's probably why it took, like, what, seven of us, five hours to discuss and <laughs> come up with. Yeah. You know, just more questions. Um, and, you know, considering all that you've just said, uh, I think another important thing to consider also is what do we mean by decolonization? Um, because Sorry. people, I think, mean different things. Um, and I think what we are specifically talking about is like a, a more literal kind of decolonization of how can you give people their land back you know how can you give people their autonomy and ability to live that a way that they want to live back after you know this generation's hundreds of years of um 
not just enslavement, but, you know, assimilation, forced education, forcing people to dress in a certain way, forcing people to, you know, pray in a certain way. Um, is decolonization undoing all of that? Or is a possibility for decolonizing ayahuasca something um, maybe more, uh, I, I don't want to say easily attainable, but, you know, obviously that's <laughs> not, not an easy to attainable thing, but, um, you know, something that uh, I think an everyday person could do, which, um, as Burns suggests, yes, it might be just not consuming ayahuasca or the plants or, you know, other uh, other elements of of these cultures and of these societies, at least without first establishing some very, very uh, well thought out form of um, what we like to call, and I think often don't understand too well, reciprocity. Exactly. This is a very important point, and because we often, as you have been discussing so far, there is this phenomena that is happening of massive ayahuasca availability of centers for uh, or treatment or, or spiritual pilgrimage, but oftentimes it's not reciprocated to the local communities that are whether acting as facilitators in the rituals themselves or providing with the with the plants or concocting the plants. So there's also a question of inequality there, and I think uh, it's important to to address if we want to talk about the colonizing. And it's for your comments, I think it, it's really it's something that is really present. But now uh, we have uh, run short of time. It was such a fascinating discussion that uh, I uh, just wanted to go on and on, but we had to bring it to a wrap. And I would like to ask you if you have any concluding remarks or comments about it we have been talking about so far. Um, I just want to thank you both. It's been so nice to talk with you again. And thank you for inviting us for this conversation. <laughs> Thank you, Olivia, for joining us. Bernd? Yes, thank you very much, too. Um, I, I would like to add one thing about this decolonization uh, question, uh, because I think every time, as, as we said, maybe maybe you have to stop using ayahuasca, but because every time you use it, you kind of do something to these power relations and, and inequalities, and it's maybe like using plastic bags or flying airplanes that there is a drawback and you have to be conscious of that. If you board a plane, you know that you're doing something for climate change and for global warming and you kind of shouldn't do it, but maybe you do it anyway. So I think uh, this is something we should consider when we do something like, like ayahuasca retreats and so on, that we do augment inequalities uh, we do augment uh, unequal power relations, uh, things that are based on the expectations and needs of Westerners or Northerners and not on the indigenous people. So keep that in mind. Uh, think of it like flying an airplane. Sometimes it might be necessary, but you have to be uh, aware that there is a drawback always. Mm. That is like maybe if awareness is maintained, then we can, uh, yeah. 
act in a more uh, reciprocative way, maybe. That is a great wrap-up for this podcast. Thank you, Bern. Thank you, Olivia, for joining us in the Release Studies Project. And we hope to have you again soon in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for this great episode. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in today. We hope that you have enjoyed it. And please head over to social media and let us know what you thought. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, be sure to head over to our website at religiousstudiesproject.com where you can find more information about this episode as well as a transcript. And, of course, we always appreciate any support that you're able to give, whether it's a one-time donation via PayPal or signing up for a monthly donation as little as $1 a month at patreon.com. That goes a long way to helping support the excellent work of our wonderful team members here at the RSP. We are very happy to be back and getting in the swing of things here at the beginning of 2022. And we are excited about all of our upcoming episodes. And we hope that you are too. So until next time, all that's left to say is thanks, thanks for, for listening. listening. The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR, and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Andy Alexander and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter and David Robertson. Our features are edited by Savannah Finver, and our opportunities digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews. Video editing by Alison Isidore. Podcast transcription by Jaden Bartashius. And social media managed by Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon.com, .co.uk and .ca links or donating at patreon.com backslash projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, iTunes and all other portals. Thanks for listening.